All right, back on the Young Turks. I'm gonna read your member comments first. Viscous Cree says, future historians will find a copy of the day after tomorrow and think it was a documentary. Uh, was John Cusack in that movie, Day After Tomorrow? No, he wasn't, okay, that was another disaster movie, right? Anyway, he's a good progressive. Uh, Anna Kasparian's cow writes in, yes, now a member has that handle. Anna will be suing you later. Uh, I don't think I'm the only one who doesn't want a small car to fall on my head, referring to that flooding story we we're just talking about in Nebraska. Now onto the Biden story, uh, Robert F. Strickland says, baby boomer politicians, listen up. We have instant replay, blast from the past, just like the NFL. Uh, and Mimi says, uh, I want a Republican nightmare, Bernie for president in 2020 and AOC in 2024. She will be the minimum age in 2024. Okay, one thing at a time. One thing at a time, uh, but I hear you. And finally, on Twitter, and use hashtag TYT Live. Talk to us anytime we're on the air on Twitter. Uh, Old Turk writes in Thomas was confirmed by two votes. Letting the others testify could have changed history. And as we just told you, Joe Biden did not allow three others to testify that would have backed up an India Hill story. All right, now let's go on to our next guest. Uh, joining me now is Colby Hall, uh, he's the founding editor of Mediate. And uh, and we'd love to have him on to talk about the media a little bit. Colby, uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, Shane. How are you? Good, good. I'm I'm rock and roll. Uh, except as usual, I'm mad at the media. Um, <laughs> all right. So um, uh, today, uh, just to pick a couple of topics from the the news, uh, there was uh, the Trump administration in court saying that they are going to uh, ask for a full repeal of uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And so New York Times did have a good story and, and some others as well explaining the devastation that would happen. 21 million people would be uninsured, uh, 52 million people uh, would be affected because of pre-existing conditions. Um, and that's not all the people that would be affected by uh, pre-existing conditions. Those are the ones that would likely lose their coverage. So that's another 52 million uh, and another 109 million affected by uh, lifetime caps that would come back, etc. So uh, my beef, Colby, with the media, and I want to run it by you, is that they'll report that stuff, and then when Donald Trump says uh, Republicans are going to be the healthcare party, uh, they'll just say it with a straight face, and then CNN will have a debate about it and make it appear to be 50-50 when it's not 50-50. Uh, the Republicans clearly will take away healthcare from tens of millions of Americans. Am I seeing that wrong, or am I right about uh that? Well, I think generally speaking, you're probably right. I mean, if anything, um, you know, if President Trump is a genius at anything, it's throwing out the sort of shiny object that uh, knowing that the media will pounce on that and sort of driving the narrative. I will say in it was a really weird play for him to sort of come out with uh, this health care, you know, sort of gambit so soon after what was probably the best weekend of his presidency, um, when clearly he or no one in his administration really has a plan. I mean, all Trump has ever done is just, you know, sort of make empty promise after empty promises that this new healthcare plan will be better, it'll be cheaper, it will cover everyone. Clearly, it's a very complicated thing, and he hasn't thought any of this through. But, you know, if we know anything about President Trump, he just says whatever will please his audience in, you know, for the next 10 minutes. Um, so, and I will say that, you know, in the, some of the cable news that I saw today, I heard that note a lot. I heard a lot of people basically saying, what is he doing? This isn't, um, you know, there was no sort of policy conversation. The only 
person that really spoke about this was Lindsey Graham was on CNN around 11 o'clock. And he said what they intend to do is move sort of block funding from a federal level to a state level, um, which he thought would sort of, I don't know, improve the ability to manage on a state by state level. That might work. Uh, if people are still, if there's still pre-existing coverage and in uh, in costs go down, I think people may get behind that. But we've seen this story before. Um, the thing I also think I would add is that the Republicans are, have not, you know, their healthcare story has not served them well. I mean, I'm old enough to remember 2009 how we were, and really for the first two or three years of, uh, you know, sort of Obamacare going into uh, effect, that <clears throat> we were told sort of unemployment would go through the roof. The economy would be cratered. Obamacare was going to be the scourge and the end of Western civilization as we know it. Somehow, media has forgotten that. And it was really only 10 years ago that that happened. And my issue with the media is not holding to account the very people. You see Rick Santorum, who's a lobbyist, appearing on CNN, and he's advocating on behalf of those who pay him money about uh, health care when he was fighting the, the most vocal fight against Obamacare and he is let off the hook. So again, it's this weird bait and switch where Republican and conservative media are let off the hook from their sort of dire warnings from really even just five or six years ago. Well, that goes to the heart of uh, what I'm talking about, Colby, because um, Republicans very, very often lie. And it's not just Donald Trump, uh, but I think the media is very afraid to say that. So. For example, um, Trump said there was 19 angry Democrats who were leading a witch hunt out to get him. And then when Mueller clears him on the collusion part of it in, in terms of what happened during the election, then he turns around and uh, says, "Oh yeah, yeah, I want the report to come out. Well, what happened to the 19 angry Democrats in the witch hunt? Well, and every Republican who backed that, Matt Gates and all of you others, well, weren't you guys lying? Weren't you? Aren't? Shouldn't you have to apologize for that? I mean, all of their stupid conspiracy theories. Obama's going to put people in FEMA camps. Well, they're not in FEMA camps. Uh, Ted Cruz on his website talked about how uh, we would all be going to be forced into Hobbit homes by the United Nations. Louis Gomer talked about how uh, Obama was going to reconstitute the Ottoman Empire. But, but I think that a lot of the mainstream media are afraid to take it from Trump to the Republican Party at large and then to the Republican voters because they're afraid that they might lose ratings if they offend those Republican voters. But the reality is 90% of Republican voters are on Donald Trump's side and the jury's in, they've seen what he's done. And and all those congressmen are on his side and the voters are on his side. So they're just as guilty of these lies. There's a lot to unpack on there and I would agree with your assessment pretty much soup to nuts. I mean, I would say that the political, you know, sort of Republican Party, you know, to say that they're lying is probably fair, but I think they're, what's worse is that they're playing a game. What they're doing is very craven and um, shameless. And, you know, what we're seeing is sort of the death of meaning, kind of, and, and it doesn't really matter what one has said before, uh, said before or after. I mean, Mitch McConnell is the best example of that, or again, Lindsey Graham. Remember, Lindsey Graham was, you know, was the one who advised McCain should send the early form of the dossier to the FBI, and then later said on the record, before he got all cozy with Trump, that President Trump's relationship with Russia should be investigated. And now 
he's the one that's leading the charge and saying that uh, the investigator should be investigated. But to your point about the media, I think that's really savvy. And you know, I've talked about this a few times before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, what you have on conservative opinion media media is that they play bare knuckle boxing. They, you know, no holds barred. They'll say or do whatever they can to win a point. Um, what you see in the mainstream media is they're they're sort of flanked by criticism that they are uh, they have a liberal bias, and in many ways, if progressive and liberals are sort of ruled by reason and smarts, then they are biased by reason and smarts and intelligence. But very often, that gets painted as like sort of elitist culturalist, and that's that's really unfair. It's like being smart; you're being blamed for being smart. So um, you see CNN and, and MSNBC being very muted in their criticism of anyone on the right, and then doing this weird sort of horse race journalism that it does that ends up in this being this false uh, equivalency that does no one a service. So the way that it's been positioned is there's, there's a dearth of what we've said, and we're called you, the leader of the fighting left, those who are willing to sort of say no, and kind of calling bullshit really on, on I could say bullshit, right? Uh, on the, the sort of conservative media talking points, which, you know, really, very often don't take much critical thinking to sort of explode in their face, but it doesn't matter. It's a shiny object. We feel like we got a one in this tribal world. Uh, you know, it's their own set of alternative facts that uh, Kellyanne, Kellyanne Conway sort of coined, you know, originally. And, you know, that that's where we are right now. So you have less informed people and that's a real shame. Yeah, I want to get to Kellyanne Conway in a, in a second, but you know, just to finish the thought here, I'm gonna go one step further. I believe it's literally political correctness when you equate truth and lies and when you say, well, I can't tell the difference between democratic policy and Republican policy. Well, then I think you shouldn't be a journalist. So, you know, when they say, well, I don't want I don't want to offend Republican party and I don't want to offend the Republican voters, so I'll call healthcare even. But it's not even. Under one plan, 21 million people are gonna lose their healthcare and on the other one, they're not. So it's not even, and when the Republicans say that it is, you should call them what they are. But they won't because even though it is factually correct, it is not politically correct. Well, two things, I think you're right. I think, first of all, Obamacare, if it gets changed and branded into a different name, has still won. Because what Obamacare has basically created is the expectation that everyone should have health care and that pre-existing conditions should not deny you health care. The the Republican Party, I believe, if they try to remove that, they know that that will be a huge political hit. So I think no matter what they change and what they do, it will still be Obamacare or people, healthcare will still exist, even though they're actively been pushing to kill healthcare. There's no way that they can kick 21 million people off of healthcare. Getting back to the journalism question, though, I think we throw that word around way too lazily. Like, I think journalists are not salacious, they're fact-driven, they're boring. And I go back to the sort of civic discourses that used to be presidential debates of the 70s that were close set, the moderator was smoking a cigarette, it was long, it was dry, it was issue-oriented, it was boring. You go to the you know sort of 2016 primary debates, which I was excited to watch because it was great entertainment. They introduced each candidate walking out, and you know there was it was just like a fog machine away from being a wrestling event, and it was wildly entertaining. But there was no journalism there, and so I think what you mostly see on cable news, the vast majority of it is not journalism. In fact, it's it's entertainment packaged as journalism, but no one is held to the standard of 
You know, sort of anyone can throw out an opinion. And, you know, that's, you know, journalism, you know, I hate to say this, but journalism is in a tough spot right now because we no longer rely on facts. We just rely on analysis and opinion. And everyone's got that. You know, just because you've got the microphone and you've got the platform doesn't mean that your analysis and opinion is any more valid. But to your point, the false equivalency of saying, well, on the other hand, and on one hand, that's, CNN is is pretty bad about doing the false debate, but I will say at least MSNBC is sort of guilty of not having enough dissenting opinions. So it's a little bit of groupthink, and Fox News is is sort of the worst of them all because they're the best at what is really a shallow and craven strategy. Yeah, uh, is you know misin- willfully misinforming. Yeah, so um, I, I think what CNN is doing is casting a soap opera. And so they cast characters within that soap opera. And so they care about the drama and the fight more than they care about whether they're delivering facts to the audience. All right, before I let you go, Colby, and we talk, I love talking to Colby because media covers the media. And that's why we have these conversations about the media. You should check them out and they you have all the perspectives on it. And poor Colby has to watch so much cable news. Okay, um, <laughs> last thing is is my fun theory on Kellyanne Conway and George Conway. I think that Kellyanne Conway will look, after all this is over, uh, will turn around and go, guys, I had my husband tweeting the whole time what was wrong with Donald Trump. It wasn't that complicated. I was sending an SOS. How could you guys not see it? Well, what do you think about my theory? Speaking of soap operas and drama, I thought it was a perfect segue there. I think that's her hedge. I think, candidly, you know, I, I, I can't say what's really going on in the relationship between George and Kellyanne Conway. It's fascinating. It's entertainment. It is totally in line with the current world that we are. And, and you know, Kellyanne Conway is sort of the purest expression of our current state of cable news and media coverage. She is the sort of immovable object that can't be beat up. I mean, she's a world-class pivoter and talking points. But she also clearly doesn't really believe in a lot of what she's saying because she pivots so much. Um, I, I think it's really, I can't say definitively because I don't know, but I think your theory holds up. I think that George Conway and Kellyanne Conway both enjoy being the it couple. They live in a sort of $8 million mansion in the toniest part of DC. They are, you know, oft talked about. And let's, let's we forget, like George Conway is being painted as this hero uh, by the right because he's the Republican that's speaking truth to power. But he was the guy that reportedly sent, you know, sort of details of Bill Clinton's genitalia to Matt Drudge when he was sort of under the radar representing Paula Jones. So his hands aren't clean in this world at all. But I, I, I do believe that you know, Kellyanne Conway comes home, she unloads, and, you know, Donald Trump's histrionics are legendary, shares them with George. They they likely have a, a sort of an agreement to do what they do. It gets them a ton of attention. And if things go south, Kellyanne Conway can play the, I was trying to get the word out through George Conway, my husband, the whole time, Gambit. If she doesn't have to do that, then she's like, well, you know, we're independent, we're married, we're happy, but it is a crazy thing to follow. Yeah, they're trying to set up a win-win, but I, yeah, we're not buying it. Or believe me, when she plays that, we'll play our clip saying we knew you, what you were doing all along. Well, but- she also, she, she also, real quickly, you know, was was had told Washington Post details about their marriage and then tried to pass it off as uh, off the record from a source that was, you know, 
familiar with their relationship. Cliff Sims also wrote in a book that while he was drafting a no-leak policy on Kellyanne Conway's computer, there were iMessages coming up on her desktop, in which she was leaking specific things to reporters. So she is she will say or do whatever is politically expedient, and she's playing both ways right now. Totally agreed. All right, Colby Hall from Mediate. Everybody check out uh, Mediate when you get a chance. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Jane, thanks for having me. All right, uh, when we come back, uh, note to Mr. Reagan and Sean Hannity, we have the real mastermind behind the Green New Deal, uh, and you don't wanna miss this. Uh, Rihanna, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you, it's wonderful to be here. All right, great, uh, there we go. Now, Rihanna, I'll build you as the mastermind uh, behind the Green New Deal. <laughs> so. Uh, soon there will be YouTube videos about you, so I'm warning you now. <laughs> okay, uh, so what are you guys uh, doing in reality uh, to come up with a policy behind the Green New Deal? So new consensus has three objectives when it comes to policy development for the Green New Deal. Uh, we identify, align, and mobilize expertise. And so that means for us a few things. The first is just an intervention in how we define expertise. So new consensus defines expertise, not just as academics or policy wonks, but folks in frontline communities who have been working on these issues for years. And we bring those people to the same table sometimes physical convening sometimes in other ways to talk through these issues. And so we've begun that process. We continue to identify experts, particularly from frontline communities, and bring them in. And so right now we're actually designing a policy input process uh, where there'll be an internal Likely we'll see what shape this is, but there'll be uh, an input side for frontline communities, so for actual residents, and then also input from experts uh, across the board, largely working together. And so right now we've just been identifying experts and then bringing them in to talk about what are the questions that we need to be considering in each of the areas of the new the Green New Deal, what are the tensions and so what are and what are the solutions, just beginning to talk about solutions um, that fit these criteria along with the goals and the Green New Deal. So before we even get into the details of uh, the Green New Deal itself, um, I, I <laughs> love the way that New Consensus is thinking about organizing a new way of doing think tanks. Uh, so yeah. uh, for almost all of the think tanks, all they care about is the elites. They're staffed by the elites, they're for the elites. I don't know that they ever talk to any real Americans. And so when you talk about bringing in real Americans from the front lines, it's a great idea and a constituency that ironically in a democracy is never served. And so, <laughs> and, and look, Rihanna, is <laughs> a kind of funny thing. They'll throw a lot of weird compliments at you, but um, Arguably, you're part of the elites because uh, you're a Rhodes Scholar, yeah. uh, and yeah. you know you're a policy director for Abdul El Said. Uh, you're a policy analyst for the Detroit Health Department. You're a policy intern for Michelle Obama. So you have a tremendous amount of qualifications uh, to wrestle with this topic. Yeah. But I love that you are then going and talking to people uh, because qualifications aren't just being a Rhodes Scholar, aren't just being an expert on the topic, but living. Uh, the the issues, the problems, etc., that we're confronted with in the Green New Deal. Unfortunately, every day you have more victims to talk to. Uh, you know, right? Uh, including yeah. the flooding in in the Midwest now. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so my interest uh, and New Consensus's interest more broadly comes from several people, but my interest comes from the fact that, like, yes, I am an elite now, but I grew up in Inglewood in Chicago. Um, and that the just the circumstance of my life being born there, having a single mother, even though my mom had a college degree, I had to leave home at 14 to go to a good high school. Um, and so recognizing where I come from and the folks who are still there and the ways that they need to be served have always motivated me. I've always been writing for my home. Um, and I know that that's true for other folks at New Consensus, but beyond my personal um, feelings or experience, it just makes good policy. Uh, so much policy fails because one, uh, because it's made by elites who don't actually often use the systems that they're uh, making policies about, especially when it comes to social policy. Um, They're often designing for problems that people are not defining as the problems that they want solved. And so that creates a lot of tension. And also um, everything is embedded in a system. So when you change a policy, other parts of the system also change. And so you can create a lot of unintended uh, negative second order effects. And so talking to folks on the ground, they are the people who can identify those second order effects the most quickly and the most efficiently. And so instead of designing things and then bringing it to them, right, which means that you've already decided the power relationships that you want. You've probably already made relationships based on what's in there. Um, And so things aren't quite as movable as you're presenting. If you take that to people and just ask them to give feedback, you're not giving yourself the chance to make the best policy. Um, So that's also where new consensus is coming from, especially for something with a Green New Deal. We just don't have time to be not considering second order effects, not considering what's happening in local communities, not treating those as real interventions, and not recognizing that, for better or worse, a lot of states and localities have been trying to figure out how to solve this problem on their own and have things uh, that can be scaled up and, at the very least, lessons that can be learned. So, Rihanna, now let's get into the heart of uh, what could be in the Green New Deal, because right now what they voted on was a a non-binding resolution. And they right. kind of voted on it. I, I, I don't know what your <laughs> yes. political thoughts on it are, but I, I hated that uh, voting present by the Democrats. Um, <laughs> okay, but that's a separate conversation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, And I'm also probably not the best person for that conversation. I stay pretty closely focused on the policy aspects yeah, of it. Yeah, I hear you. So let's stick with that. So, uh, of course, the right-wing think tanks are, well, how shall I phrase this? Liars. Uh, so one of them came up with this outrageous, preposterous lie that the Green New Deal would cost ninety-three trillion dollars, and 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 eighty billion of that had nothing to do with the environment. I mean, not eighty billion, eighty trillion of it had nothing to do with the environment. It's the whole thing's. It's been debunked in every way that you can debunk something. Uh, but that does lead to the question of well, they they were making up numbers because there isn't any actual policy initiatives yet in the non-binding resolution. What could be in the legislation that would actually be the Green New Deal? Well, I mean, the project set, or the resolution sets out 14 projects, which will all be policies in various forms. Some are bigger programs, which are upgrade, say upgrading every home and building in the US to be more energy efficient, um, as well as safer. Um, And 
that is a project that would take multiple policies. There's other things um, like a smart grid, which is will take multiple policies, but is often seen as like a discrete um, policy. And so you will definitely see um, a movement towards a smart grid, sort of what would policies to create a smart grid. Um, you're definitely going to see policies to decarbonize uh, the electricity sector. Right now, the resolution is purposely technology neutral so that everything's on the table and we have all everything um, available to make smart decisions. But you could definitely see um, different elements about decarbonizing um, electricity, including right investments in distributed um, um, distributed renewables, distributed solar, um, efforts to make our energy system more efficient, some really interesting thoughts about energy governance, right? Um, you're also going to see in various aspects, right? Uh, transportation, obviously, that is going to involve policies around the adoption of EVs and the deployment of EVs, as well as investments in public transit. And of course, there's a whole infrastructure piece, which is all about how do we actually uh, create sustainable infrastructure um, for the 21st century. So of course, you're going to see a lot of public investment um, there. And also, investment in sort of the next generation of American infrastructure. So how do you think about infrastructure outside of building um, highways, right? How do you think about it outside of roads? Um, and what sort of investments do we need um, to, to have to reduce energy use? So you're going to be seeing some things around uh, land use um, and the ways that infrastructure supports, um, supports that and supports the movement to more on energy efficient communities. So some those are some of the things that you'll see. It's really difficult to say specifics because we are serious about consultation. We are serious about not making choices before we talk to people, which is very disconcerting for a lot of folks, but we mean it. And so that's why there's hesitancy, but the resolution gives out uh, gives some really good ideas about the goals and some of the policies that would fit underneath that. So, Rihanna, there's a lot to talk about there, but let's talk about transportation for a second. Yeah. Uh, the Republicans keep saying that you guys are going to ban airplanes. <laughs> so, can we dispense with that? Uh, are airplanes <laughs> going to uh, remain legal, uh, even though we would like people to use them less? Yeah, uh, I, I have not heard any serious conversations about making airplanes illegal, at least on our side. But there is a real question of how do you make um, airplanes emissions free, right? Aviation is a very difficult sector uh, to decarbonize. And so you will see thinking in there about electrification, which isn't, which has a really disputed and largely uh, a lot of folks don't think about that in terms of aviation. But of course, then you're talking about biofuels. There's a lot of issues with biofuels, but it's also a promising way forward. So how do we make biofuels cleaner, um, right? Um, how do we how do we offset emissions from aviation too, right? Especially as we know that the technology to decarbonize aviation is starting to be commercialized and is in its infancy and how do we grow those markets? Um, but that's, so that's what we're thinking about in terms of innovation or in terms of aviation, not yeah. banning, but how do you do it responsibly and how do you do it in the framework of a more sustainable economy? Yeah, what I love is that, you know, the mainstream media equates Republicans and Democrats, and it's hilarious because their side is like, "Oh, they're gonna ban airplanes, man." 
And on our side, we have a Rhodes Scholar talking about offsetting emissions to decarbonize aviation. Okay, <laughs> gee, I wonder who's the yeah. smart party. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. so one last thing here, because we're running out of time, Rihanna. Uh, sure. And how much time do you think it's gonna take to be able to come up with the actual legislation? Uh, is it a process that you think will take six months, a year, 18 months? And I know you're guessing at it, but to the best right. of your ability to guess. Well, one of the reasons that the Green New Deal is framed off of the New Deal was that the New Deal was a, a rash of legislation over a long time period. And we expect that the Green New Deal will also take a similar form. So some folks are interested. We already know that some folks are interested in releasing something within the next six months to um, to a year, but really the next six months. Um, and so that will be on particular pieces of the Green New Deal. So what I think you'll see and, and why the timeline question is difficult is that you'll probably see different legislators breaking out different parts of the Green New Deal and releasing plans about that uh, or re releasing legislation about that. And so I think it depends. I think you'll see some within the next six months um, to 10 months, especially from presidential candidates. We already know that some of them are working on their own versions of the Green New Deal. So you'll see that. And of course, some of that will likely be turned into legislation. You'll probably see the the biggest bulk of Green New Deal legislation come after the 2020 election, um, when hopefully we have a Democrat in office who is excited and willing to work on these issues. Um, but you'll definitely see some things moving um, in a piecemeal fashion before then, for sure. Okay, so you say you don't do politics, you do policy. So uh, uh, future Cabinet Secretary Rihanna Gunn-Wright, thank you for joining us on The Young Turks. <laughs> It was lovely. Thank you for having me. Uh, no problem. Uh, all right, everybody check out New Consensus and, and get involved. Thank you. Bye. All right, uh, when we come back, we've got the post game for the members. Uh, we're apparently going to talk about a Megan McCain uh, comment that got memed. Uh, that's fun. It's a fun story. Uh, on the other side of not fun is more horrible comments by Mo Brooks. So all that for the members when we return. And of course, to become a member, tyt.com slash join. Or you can try it out for a week for free at tyt.com slash trial. We'll be right back.